Welcome to the More Than a Pastor Show with Rich Avery. If you're tired of feeling stuck, broke, or unfulfilled in your life and ministry, you're in the right place. This show is about helping you reimagine your calling so you can enjoy the life, impact, and income you were made for. And now your host, marathon runner, In-N-Out burger lover, and a guy who's more than a pastor, Rich Avery. Hey there, welcome back to More Than a Pastor. My name is Rich Avery. I'm a multivocational pastor and coach dedicated to helping you provide for your family what your ministry income can't. Stick around and I'll show you how to turn your ministry know-how into sustainable income through a business or side hustle you love so you can serve God and provide for your family no matter what. Hey, I'm really glad you took the time to join me today. If you're new to the show, you can learn more about me, get the show notes for today's episode, and download some free resources to help you not just survive, but thrive in these uncertain financial times over at morethanapastor.com slash 15, and that's for episode 15. Well, we're continuing our series on why I think the future of the church in America is co-vocational why I think the church of the 21st century will look a lot less than the 20th century and a lot more like the first century. And why now is the time for pastors like you and me to figure out how to leverage our ministry skills into a secondary income source so we can serve God and provide for our families no matter what. The episodes uh, in this series are on the shorter side, maybe 15 minutes each, and in each one I'll share a different cultural, social, or economic shift or trend that I believe points to a co-vocational future for pastors in the church in America, where we're going to see churches that are smaller and pastors that are working in the church and in the marketplace. So in this series, I've got a free resource that I'm offering, and it's called How to Know if Starting Your Own Business is Right for You. In it, I share the top 12 signs that you just might be ready to start your own business. And I share the three most important things that every pastor needs in order to launch and grow a successful, profitable business. You can download your free copy today at morethanapastor.com slash biz. That's morethanapastor.com slash B-I-Z. Well, in today's show, we're going to be talking about progressive theology, racial justice, and LGBTQ, and the co-vocational future of the church. And I'll tell you in just a moment why I decided to lump these three things together in one uh, podcast. But first, have you ever been driving in your car on your way somewhere, and you're pretty sure you know how to get there, but after a while of driving in that direction... You have a moment when you realize you're not quite sure where you are or how to get where you wanted to go. I've had times like that in the past. In fact, I remember vividly a time when our family had driven to Detroit for the day, and this was back in 2007 or maybe 2008. My wife is Canadian, eh? And she had an appointment at the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service in Detroit as part of her progress toward becoming a U.S. citizen. So it's one of those deals where you arrive like at 8 in the morning, drop off a bunch of uh, paperwork, maybe some photos, things like that, 
And then uh, maybe there's an interview with one of the immigration officers first thing, but then you just leave your papers there and then you have to come back at the end of the day, maybe like around four o'clock in the afternoon and pick up your documents. Hopefully they've been stamped or approved or whatever has to be done. We had several appointments like that uh, from from before when we first got married and I had to uh, do a, what they call a fiancé uh, petition to be able to get married. And then um, once we got married, then uh, she had like her temporary green card status. And then after two years of marriage, then she got her permanent residency, permanent green card. And and then after, I don't know, I think like 10 years or so, maybe it was just five years. I don't know. At some point after that, then she's able to apply to become a U.S. citizen. And so uh, she decided to do that back in 2007 or eight. And um, we had to go for one of those appointments to get that paperwork taken care of. And and then she had to take a test and all that stuff. And anyway, it was really cool, the uh, entire process, but a lot of work and a lot of money uh, to get that uh, taken care of as well. So anyway, we get there early in the morning, drop off the papers, and we've got like the whole day to kill, uh, a lot of time to kill before uh, we had to come back and pick up the papers. And so I thought it'd be cool to take the family to downtown Detroit to do some exploring. And it was a beautiful summer day. And I, I thought I was pretty sure that I knew the road to take from the immigration office to downtown because we were not really that far from downtown at all. But after driving 10, maybe 15 minutes or so in the direction I thought we needed to get to downtown, I realized we're not getting any closer to downtown Detroit. I mean, we should have been seeing tall buildings by now, but we weren't. So I did the one thing that men must never do while driving. I admitted to my wife that I had lost my way and that I really had no idea where we were or how to get to downtown Detroit. Now, remember, this was back in 2007 or 2008, so there was no map app on the iPhone. And actually, I'm not even sure if I had an iPhone at this point. I probably still had one of those old uh, Nokia flip phones. So I pulled into a parking lot and decided I better find someone to ask for help. And as I turned into that nearby lot and pulled into a parking spot, there on the horizon right before my very eyes... I could see the iconic Renaissance Center building and the beautiful downtown Detroit skyline before me. And I asked myself, how in the world had I lost sight of the tall buildings of my downtown destination? We had started out right there so close to downtown and now we ended up being miles away from where we had ever wanted to be. I don't know about you, But that's exactly how I feel when I think about the plight of LGBT people with the church and also with the issues of racism in the church today. I ask myself, how in the world did we get to the place where we're at right now, where LGBTQ people feel judged, persecuted, stereotyped, and scapegoated by Jesus-loving, peace-filled people in the church? where Christians are more known for their debate and demonization over dogma than exhibiting the gentleness and respect Christ had for the marginalized and vulnerable, when people who come out as gay face the trauma and rejection and stigmatization 
from the people who ought to love them the most, their Christian family members or friends. I was shocked to read that in the 80s and 90s, some 300,000 LGBTQ young people committed suicide because of the pain and rejection they felt from the church and their families. How did we get here? It's the same question I ask about racial justice and the church as well. How can it be that the church in America, by and large, has had a long history of defending slavery and using the scriptures to do it, perpetuating Jim Crow, resisting civil rights acts, and still to this day in many corners of the church, it continues to ignore and downplay racism as the sin that it is. How did we get to the point where thousands or maybe even millions of evangelicals embrace the ideals of so-called white Christian nationalism? How is it that 11 a.m. on Sunday is still, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said 60 years ago, the most segregated hour in America? I know there are exceptions, and I've been blessed to be part of a denomination that was involved in the abolitionist movement and in a church that's been on a huge journey to becoming multi-ethnic over the last uh, 15 years or so. But I know that still, for many people, their perspective of the church is one of racism, one of discrimination, and that just breaks my heart, and I think that breaks the heart of Christ. So I'm hesitant to bring up LGBTQ and racial justice in the same episode, along with progressive theology, but the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to make sense for several reasons. And I've got four of them here. First, uh, they both involve forms of diversity. Uh, Number two, they they involve acceptance and love of the other. Number three, uh, both involve people who've been traditionally, uh, they've been marginalized by the traditional uh, institutional, evangelical, conservative-type churches that have been in the majority in America. And number four, if you're in one of those more conservative-type churches and you advocate for ethnic diversity in your church or you express concern about how the church has alienated LGBTQ people and is pushing an entire generation away from the church, man, you often get labeled, don't you, as one of those liberals or progressives. Or worse, if you're a pastor— you get labeled as an apostate pastor like Rob Bell. And please hear me, I'm not saying that that's what I believe about Rob Bell. I'm saying that's how you get labeled and that's who you get lumped in with. You know, labels can have their place. They can be helpful, but I'm not sure it's helpful if you label everyone you disagree with, a progressive or a liberal, or you demonize those who are less dogmatic as you about being a liberal or or an apostate. And perhaps the biggest reason for me to mention the issues of racism and LGBTQ together is because I believe we're witnessing a generational shift taking place in terms of acceptance, advocacy, and activism regarding these issues. And I believe this shift has got to have an impact on the future of the church. Every generation has had its activists and causes that it's cared about, right? Think about your generation. What were the things that were most important to you at that time? For me, being a Gen Xer, man, it was work-life balance. We didn't want to be like workaholics like the baby boomers our parents were. 
we wanted to have balance, and we were even called slackers at the time uh, back in the in the early '90s. Maybe that people thought we weren't working uh, enough, but I think we ended up being becoming workaholics too in in many ways. But for us, work life balance was an important cause that we cared about. But you know, the millennial and the Gen Z generations. They are activist generations. And if you're a parent of Gen Z uh, young adults like I am, I'm sure you have noticed this. Gen Z people, millennials, are super passionate about social justice issues like immigration and the environment. But at the top of the list, you'll find racial justice and LGBTQ. And I think the reason why is that Gen Z identifies with these causes more than any previous generation. And here's what I mean. First of all, when it comes to diversity, members of Gen Z are the most racially and ethnically diverse generation that America has ever seen. Think about all the uh, biracial marriages of the the last that have been more prominent in the last 30, 40 years in America. And think about the influx of immigrants, especially like from Latin America, South America, but Africa and all over the world as well. So members of Gen Z are the most racially and ethnically diverse of any generation America has ever had. And they've experienced more diversity than any other generation in in their schools, colleges, workplaces, and for those that have served in the military uh, at this point, in the military as well. So Gen Z young people, by and large, I'm sure there are exceptions if you live in a tiny little rural town in Iowa where everyone looks just like you, but I think those communities are few and far between at this point, but most have experienced diversity in every aspect of their lives, except maybe one, maybe their church. Maybe they've experienced diversity, but by and large, many churches still struggle with that. And when Gen Z young people look at the society around them, 60% of Gen Z, and also millennials, by the way, believe that systemic racism is is fairly or very widespread throughout the society. And they don't really see the church standing up against it. And when it comes to LGBTQ, members of Gen Z identify more that way than with any previous generation as well. I was surprised to learn that one in five Gen Z adults identify as LGBTQ. And bisexual is the most common identification. One in six Gen Z adults identify as bisexual, according to a 2021 survey by Gallup. Interestingly, did you know that nearly one out of three young Christians identify as LGBTQ. And if you look at the Gen Z and millennial generations, 71% say they care about LGBTQ rights and 74% are in favor of same-sex marriage. So another thing that Gen Z is passionate about is genuine community. They place a high value on relationships and not just at a superficial level. I'm talking about real acceptance, inclusion, and belonging. What those of us in the church might refer to as radical hospitality. Unfortunately, according to surveys, most in Gen Z don't believe they can find that kind of community and belonging in the church. And exhibit A 
is the church's decades-long struggle to offer acceptance and belonging to LGBTQ people. In fact, a 2021 survey by Springtide Research Institute showed that half of young people ages 13 to 25 surveyed said they don't believe that the church or religious institutions care as much as they do about the social issues that matter deeply to them, like racial justice and LGBTQ. And because of that, this translates into a low level of trust with the church. That same survey reported that Gen Z gives the church a 4.9 out of 10 on levels of trust. I think the bottom line is that Gen Z refuses to align itself with institutions that don't share its values, institutions it doesn't trust. And so again, I ask myself, how did we get to this place where an entire generation of young people distrust the church because they believe it doesn't share their values of creating a place of belonging and safety for all people, especially those who, from their experience, have traditionally been discriminated against and marginalized by the church. So like I've said in every episode of this series, I'm not here, I don't want to berate the church, I'm not here to get into a theological or political debate, but my goal is to share a perspective on the social and cultural trends, which I believe are creating shifts that will impact the future of the church. Shifts that I believe will lead to a co-vocational future for the church. And I don't believe these shifts will point to the end of the church because Jesus is in control of the church. He is the Lord of the church. The church is its bride. The church will exist. The church will live on. The church will continue to fulfill the purpose that God has for it. But what if these trends don't point to an end to the church, but to the end of the church as we've known it in America for the last hundred years or so, the traditional, institutional, corporate church that it's become. Maybe, maybe that's a good thing. So regardless of your views on ethnic diversity or LGBTQ in the church, I think you'll agree with me that every church, including yours, will be affected by uh, these issues. And I think there's seven ways you'll be affected. First of all, I think, number one, uh, many churches will continue to see a sharp drop-off in engagement by the younger generations. And I know there's going to be exceptions, and I hope your church will be an exception. I'm sure there will still be some larger churches, but, but by and large, I feel that the younger generations are not wanting big, impersonal, institutional churches if they're going to be connected to a church or a community. I think it's going to be smaller. I think it's going to be a lot more relationship-based with the people that they know and, and, and trust, and not with anonymous people they don't know, a pastor that they don't have a relationship with that they don't trust. So that's my thought is that churches will see a a continued drop-off in engagement by the younger generations. And number two, I think that has to lead to a a financial disruption for the church. I mean, so many churches, you know, it's been our model for the last hundred years or more in America to uh, be funded primarily through tithes and offerings. I know there have been bivocational pastors and churches. I know there are exceptions, but by and large, tithes and offerings, that's been the way that church has been funded. Most churches are 
led by full-time pastors. So I think that's going to mean that many churches are going are gonna to struggle uh, to look for other ways to sustain themselves financially. They're going to have to create new models of economic sustainability. Number three, with that, I think pastors who have been full-time, many of them will need to create income outside the church. The church won't be able to continue to fund them on a full-time basis in, in many churches. Number four, I think that churches and pastors who want to reach millennials and Gen Z are going to have to reimagine how they do that in ways that meet the younger generations right where they're at and build trust with them over the long term. Again, the idea of young people coming to the church, being attracted to the church building and activities there, traditional church services, I I know there are going to be exceptions, but it seems like the statistics, the research is telling us that that they're bristling against that. They don't want anything to do with institutional life. And so I think we'll have to get more creative in how we reach people, how we connect and find them where they're at. We need to look at fresh expressions of church that don't look like church to reach people in this generation. Number five, I think this is going to cause churches and denominations to rethink labels and methodology and definitions, how we define community and and how we, we live out our theology. Maybe the old models and old labels have to die. Maybe some new ones have to be created in order for us to reach the young people who don't want anything to do with church. And I think this is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives and help us to be more creative than we've ever been. And again, I want to say that the church was made for disruption. It was born out of disruption. When the church was birthed, it grew out of the Jewish, the Hebrew faith, everything that the the Jewish people had believed about who God was, how he worked in the world, all that was upended and it was turned upside down by the new reality that came through Jesus Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And maybe, maybe something like that is happening right now before our eyes as well. Things are changing before our very eyes. Uh, number six, I think it's, it's going to mean that co-vocational pastors are going to be leading the church and they're not going to look like traditional pastors. Maybe it's going to be fresh expressions, churches and coffee shops and homes and workplaces and community centers, or it's gatherings of people for a cause in the community. Maybe that's what church is going to be, but it doesn't look like church. It's not called church. It's not led by traditional pastor. Number seven, boy, this is something that uh, has really just hit me in the last uh, the last few weeks that I think is going to really impact the future of the church. You know, the growing distrust of the institutional evangelical church among Gen Z, I think that's going to have to have a direct impact on the number of people from that generation who respond to a call to ministry as pastors and missionaries. Again, I know there will be exceptions, but if by and large those in that generation distrust institutional religion, distrust the traditional institutional church, then then what's going to lead them to respond to a call to ministry, to be involved in a church structure that they don't trust or that they don't think is relevant anymore? So I believe that if God calls people to ministry, 
they're going to respond, but maybe it's going to look different. Maybe again, they're going to work outside of the existing labels, the existing structures. Um, so I wonder, what does that mean for the future of denominations? If our denominations are are fixed in our in our dogma, in our theology, and we don't give people room to question, room to operate within structures that are fixed, then then I think they're just going to figure it out themselves and go elsewhere or create their own structures or their own community. So uh, I just wonder, what does that mean for the future of our traditional churches and um, missionary movements and things like that if our younger generations are not interested in fitting in to the current systems that we have, maybe even our current educational systems too. So I think it's going to be a time where we're going to see a lot of shifting and changing in and, and what ministry looks like. So if you're a pastor, if you're a Gen Z or a boomer uh, or a millennial, you know, think about who's who's coming up behind you. Who's going to take your place? Will there be people in this next generation who will fit in to your existing structure? Or will things have to change in order to welcome people in? Will we need new wine in new wineskins for the ministry of the church to continue uh, through this next generation? So I think these uh, shifts will create disruption that will impact every church. And, you know, we can we can curse this disruption or we can bless it. You know, we can see that it's uh, some scheme of the enemy to destroy the church and ruin a generation, or maybe Jesus can use it. Maybe it's part of his plan to renew the church, to deinstitutionalize it, to create a safer place for people who feel caught between their doubts and our dogmatism. Maybe it's an opportunity to recreate the kind of radical, beloved community that Jesus intended for his church to be in the world. I want to talk more about that in our next episode, which I've entitled Doubt, Dogmatism, Deconstruction, and the Covocational Future of the Church. I hope you'll join me for that. But before we go, I'd like to tell you about a free resource I'm offering during this series, and it's called How to Know If Starting Your Own Business is Right for You. In it, I share the top 12 signs that you might be ready to start your own business. Maybe you've wondered, is it okay for me to earn income outside the church? Is starting my own business right for me? Do I have what it takes? And you know, I believe pastors have a lot of the skills already baked in that are necessary for starting your own business. And I believe there are so many ways we can leverage our ministry skills and know-how into a profitable business. So I'd love for you to get this resource, help you to learn the top 12 signs you might be ready to start your own business, help you to learn the three most important things every pastor needs to, to have in order to launch and grow a profitable, successful business. You can download your free copy today at morethanapastor.com slash biz. That's morethanapastor.com slash B-I-Z. Well, that's it for this episode of the More Than a Pastor show. If you've enjoyed it, would you do me a favor and subscribe if you haven't done that yet and, and give me a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen it's a great way to support the show, and it just takes a few seconds. Also helps other people to find the show and uh, hopefully be a blessing for them as well. And uh, you can find my contact information, show notes, useful resources over at my website, morethanapastor.com. Until next time, remember that you are more than a pastor. 
Saying yes to God's call doesn't mean you have to say yes to feeling stuck or broke or unfulfilled in your life and ministry. Let's work together to create the life, impact, and income that you were made for.